Hi everyone, thanks for downloading this very special Christmas episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Just a quick reminder, Chris and I are doing a live podcast recording at the Barbican Centre in London, um, discussing the wonder of nature in the works of Studio Ghibli. Uh, this is going to tie in with the RSC's uh, current live production of uh, My Neighbor Totoro, which Chris and I had the pleasure of seeing a few weeks ago, and uh, spoiler alert, it's great. So um, if you haven't managed to get tickets for that, because they've sold out fast, why not come down and listen to us talk about Ghibli more broadly, thinking about how nature is explored in their works and celebrated, and also touching on issues sort of sustainability and how animation can be a force for good in that battle. So uh, we'd love to see you down there. Um, Mold wine probably will be available. If not, I'm going to go find it somewhere uh, and join us in the bar afterwards, perhaps for a drink. Um, tickets are available on Barbican website and the event is on the 22nd of December at 5pm. Barbican.org.uk Barbican.org.uk and just search Fantasy Animation and you'll find us. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Listeners, Merry Christmas and welcome to this festive episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris. It's definitely not still November holiday. I wondered how quickly you'd be uh, ready to jump in and point out that this isn't Christmas yet, Chris. You do it every year, yeah, the resident yeah. Scrooge of the podcast. Yep. I like to pretend when we're basking in sunshine that it's Halloween, Easter, Christmas, and you like to, to destroy the illusion. But that's why I'm the fantasist and you're the you're the tech guy. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> um, we're doing the snowman on this festive occasion, uh, the Channel 4 classic animation um, from the ni- early 1980s. Um, it's got a lot of fun stuff to think about in terms of Christmas iconography, the fantasy of Christmas. You know, we get to dance with Father Christmas, make snowmen, they come to life. Uh, so there's plenty for me to chat about this week, Chris. Um, as an animation, uh, yep. what what might uh, listeners be interested in looking for? So I have notes on compositional looseness, I guess the kind of painterly Ooh. painterly style of the of the film, even though it's not sort of painted in the traditional sense, the sort of the etching, the drawing, the sort of materiality of the, the images as they stand out. And also what struck me, I was going to say this time watching it, but I will confess and say the first time watching it, is the, a sort of distinction between inside and outside space and, and how fantasy moves between those two spaces. So I've actually got a little bit of fantasy to talk about this week. Uh, listeners playing the festive edition of the Fantasy Animation drink-along game already have to tick off boxes on Chris corrects Alex and Chris confesses to not watching a movie yep. that he would expect to be able to have seen. Yep. So we're already racking up the points. Yep. Um, great. Well, we're joined this uh, episode by a very special guest, uh, Dr. James Walters, who is a reader in film and television studies at the t- in the Department of Film and Creative Writing at the University of Birmingham. Um, James's research kind of hovers around two different areas, but overlapping at the same time. Um, he is an expert in screen fantasy, and I'm very familiar and often cite on this 
podcast indeed. Um, this is true. He works on fantasy, uh, alternative worlds um, in Hollywood cinema and uh, fantasy film, uh, two terrific books are on and two important works um, in, in, in sort of adapting theories of fantasy um, conceived elsewhere into the cinema. Uh, and then he's also got an extremely broad range of, of, of research projects on, 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 on television, including a book coming up uh, on repetition and television that will be forthcoming. And so if listeners are listening far in the future, at a different Christmas from now, uh, do see make, uh, make sure that exists and access it. Uh, we'll talk more about that later in the podcast. But for now, James, uh, welcome to the Fancy Animation Podcast. Oh, th- thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. So we're going to do The Snowman. Uh, I know this is a film that you um, have been thinking about quite a lot recently. There'll be a blog in a few days on, on our own website about it. So uh, The Snowman, it seems to overlap with a few areas of concern within your research, but I wondered if you could talk about what got you interested in, in thinking about The Snowman and why others might be interested in it. Well, I mean, I suppose I got interested in thinking about it this year um, because it's the 40th anniversary mm-hmm. of, of it, which um, I hadn't actually spotted. <laughs> and then I, I just sort of, you know, did my uh, basic maths and realised that um, actually it was uh, coming up. And the author of the um, original book, Raymond Briggs, um, passed away this year as well. So that kind of brought it to mind. And then it was just a lot of the things that we look at um, at the moment are big, um, it occurred to me. You know, if you want to write about um, film franchises, you're talking about many, many films. And there's almost this slight challenge of what you need to know to know anything about anything anymore. Um, and because I, you know, I write about television as well, um, same kind of thing, really, that you're, you're talking about this big span of a text uh, when you're getting into it. And the snowman really appealed because it's small, it's short, it's this little anomaly, really, in Channel 4's history, which we can talk about, um, that just sort of pops in there right at the beginning and then sticks around and gets shown every single year. Smallness is an interesting adjective to use, actually, because, yes, well, one, I'm grateful having recording this podcast in the middle of of a... always packed university term it's nice to watch something in preparation that's 24 minutes long <laughs> uh, so there's 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 an issue just of duration that i accept accept is small there's there's an issue of visuals the film is what one might you describe it as cozy quaint you know it, it's got lots of lots of adjectives we throw at it um but i'm not sure you know epic and grand is what it's going for put it that way so you know, to give people, listeners who perhaps international listeners, a bit of context, this is a, uh, a film, a television, a short, whatever we call it, a short animation that is that is shown pretty much every Christmas on Channel 4, one of the state, um, uh, well, at least partly state-owned uh, uh, broadcasters here in the UK. And it's this kind of institution, right? Have you? It's one of those Christmas viewing checklists. Did you watch uh, The Great Escape? Uh, whatever was on uh, BBC One at four o'clock on, on Christmas Day and did you catch the snowman and usually I end up watching it sort of slightly inebriated after stumbling home from the pub on Christmas Eve and that sort of thing so so why why do you think the film has sort of has developed that kind of following here in the UK um, well I think there's those things that you started off by saying you know the, this idea of kind of quaintness and coziness um, it's a film that was made in 1982, but already has a feel of the past about it, even when it's released in 1982. Um, The interior looks slightly older than the 80s setting. And so it already has this kind of Christmas nostalgia built into it. Um, 
Christmas wasn't a feature of Raymond Briggs's original story. It got introduced um, when it was adapted for television. So it kind of has that um, that aura around it before we start. It's also, you know, this shortness um, can be quite deceptive. It can hide achievement. It can hide the kind of the, the technical craft um, in something like The Snowman. But it also makes it quite an easy watch at Christmas as well. I think the stumbling home drunk from the pub scenario is, is not uncommon um, or having frazzled parents sitting their children in front of mm -hmm. something as they're desperately trying to wrap presents. Um, it kind of fits a bill there. And again, it doesn't really rely on knowing anything else. You don't need to bring anything to it. Um, you can watch it as a standalone mm -hmm. fleeting experience as part of the Christmas build-up and kind of leave it in its place. So it occupies, it's one of those weird texts that's familiar and almost unobtrusive and almost invisible. Um, and I think that that can actually be quite misleading because it can make us not look at it and not appreciate really the work and the, the technique that's gone into um, something like The Snowman. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 1982-ness, I think, is, is important for a couple of reasons, actually. I had, it hadn't quite clicked until you were, you were saying... Um, James about its sort of smallness or this sort of relationship that has to Channel 4. So the first reason that, that 1982 is interesting is that there's a bunch of, well, there's a bunch of films that straddle fantasy animation that we've already looked at on the podcast that came out that year. So Tron, The Dark Crystal, um, we can add to that Blade Runner, The Beastmaster and Star Trek Wrath of Khan. And all of these films are footnotes in a really important history of, of effects technology and animation. And, and so, so this already feels like the smaller the smaller version of all of these big narratives, these grand narratives, actually artistically. Alex is, Alex is looking at me in a way that, that I'm gone then. Well, no, I just, uh, uh, we'll come back to this, but I actually was struck by watching it this time. And maybe it's because for reasons uh, only I will hold right now, I've been a wat watching quite a lot of the, the original Superman movie over the last kind of couple of months. Um, and, and I was struck by, yes, it, it it does it does have this quaintness it does have this small scaleness to it but at the same time some of the filmmaking grammar on display here some of the yeah. stylistic yeah, yeah, choices yeah. are extremely operatic grand and actually kind of have a nod to that that early, that late 70s early 80s photorealist spectacle of you know i didn't think we'd be comparing it to the beastmaster straight out the bat but but actually it's not completely inappropriate yeah, well, I, I definitely have a, a few notes. It's a lot more mobile. The film is a lot more mobile um, than I thought it would be. It definitely doesn't walk in the air. It, you know, pretty much hurtles through all of these different spaces. And you, and the the role of sort of point of view, if we can even if we can kind of call, call it that, because you have point of view shots during the film, but then right at the start, the camera takes you through all of this landscape. This really, it, it's detailed, but it's also keeps a foot in the realm of that of the hand drawn so I, I sort of get what you mean that maybe there's a potential tension between form and content or even the styles of the of the film which aren't which maybe the hand drawnness of it or the painterly or the 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 uh, the visible marks on the paper the mark making that one can see in the film actually hides some of its grandiose or more grandiose properties potentially yeah. Um, so we could talk about that. The the other thing it's it's nineteen eighty two ness is actually going back to the the um, Van Norris's work on British television animation, and he organises the work of Channel Four into a series of phases. And the first phase 
is um, or, or waves he calls first, first, second, and, and then third wave. So the first wave of of um, British animation on television is 1955 to 1978. So it's about what he terms uh, an era of new adaptability and pragmatism. Animation is a kind of functional medium, and you often find it in information cartoons and sort of more propaganda, um, he says. And then, then we move into the second wave, which is 1979 to 1996. So this isn't that, that far into that second wave. Um, and he talks a lot about Ardman, but he also talks about Joanna Quinn and the, and the Quay brothers. So the second wave was a flourishing flourishing period that he says was a corrective to the uh, fragmented era of the first wave here we have um, new beginnings a real acceptance he says of animation as a as a real really viable art form uh, and then at the heart of this viability was a growing industry um, and cultural acceptance that animation was more than just a medium for children so that really struck me that this is right at the start of this second wave of of which you know Ardman is is perhaps one of the key players if we think about what Ard was doing in Creature Comforts but also um, the earlier Wallace and Gromit um, and so this yeah I just thought it was interesting that this comes right at the start of a second wave so again has a kind of importance to the history of um, British animation that, that is sketched by Van Norris who I know you know well Alex but that this sort of you know my, this my esteemed colleague yes, yes um, so that that trajectory I think is really important to try and insert that film or this film into into that um, into that lineage yeah I mean um, it was it was quite inspirational it's funny you should mention Ardman because Nick Park was you know, cites it as something that was inspirational um, for for Wallace and Gromit, the style of Raymond Briggs. Um, The Snowman's included in that, but there's other of Raymond Briggs's books that were kind of an inspiration for that. And you can see the the Britishness of the the mise-en-scene of these sorts of British animations, the way in which they start in living rooms, in kitchens, in small spaces, and then suddenly explode out and sort of soar out into a whole different space and also a different set of narrative potentials, um, you know, fictional world potentials as we think of them. And this expansion. And I think that the snowman is is an early archetype of that, mm, yeah. of that idea that you locate it within something that is small, domestic, but also British. I mean, that list that you um, mentioned, Chris, of all the other films, I think they're all US films yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that are the, the fantasy um uh, I was going to say genre, but then we'll get into a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, well, uh, yeah. Let's yeah. not go there just yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this sort of how do you have an alternative to that type of fantasy cinema? You know, um, was it Dark Crystal and Blade Runner yeah. that have technical accomplishments of a particular kind and are wonderful? and have this epic scale to them and they're really detailed and really you know wonderful films the the texture and the detail of something like the snowman with its hand-drawn um style places it not only kind of nationally within a different context but also stylistically within a different tradition it takes us back to a tradition of um of of animation but of drawing of kind of you know graphic uh tradition that those other films perhaps don't yeah yeah and and that's a and that's also a has been understood by writers such as paul wells kind of connecting the domestic and the hand-drawn 
to to gender you know this is a very what he terms a feminine aesthetic and and let's not forget this is not to say that this is directed by women women and so forth people writing on on filmmakers like Lottie Reiniger I know Caroline Ruddle has written on Reiniger in relation to craft and and the the gendered element of of hand drawn there's something a, a, a feminine aesthetic that is often attributed to that that level of or that that craft-based, let's say, aesthetic, the hand-drawn, the domestic, the tabletop, Lottie Reiniger working outside of a recognised studio system, working at home and creating and crafting these these animated pieces. There was something, there was something of that flavour, and it hadn't, again, hadn't twigged. And I realised that that this is so. This is Diane, yeah, Diane Jackson, yeah, Jackson. Um, yeah. directed and, and adapted it for from Briggs's novel. And it's not just, I mean, Diane Jackson does direct it, but you've also got Hilary Ordus and um, Joanna Harrison, um, who are the lead animators. Yeah. And yeah. They're, they're doing a lot of the work adapting Raymond Briggs's visuals um, into this. Um, yeah. into this, And they come up with a lot of the ideas as well. So they come up with the idea of the motorbike. <laughs> uh, and I think they come up with the idea of Father Christmas. And it's interesting what you're saying about gender, that we've got um, a female director of of this film, but we've also got a strong female team um, yeah. that are really leading the creative side of it. Um, so I, I think the point that you're making is absolutely true in this case. Yeah. Why don't we unpack the, the 24 minutes of it? We could do it in real time this episode. You, could, you could watch <laughs> along. People, people could watch along. There we go. <laughs> but But... To start with, because we better get into the the, the story of the of the beginning, because the version I watched slightly hastily um, yesterday on YouTube has a kind of slightly interesting live action sequence with a sort of person walking through the woods, saying sort of reminiscing about that time he built the snowman. Mm. My understanding is that there's there's another there's another version of that beginning, and it, well, and it features David Bowie. That's the one I watched. David Bowie. We yeah. better talk about. So James, do you want to tell us that w- what happened here and, and where and what? Yeah, what the story of that beginning is. Okay, so the voice that you heard, uh, Alex, in your version is, is Raymond Briggs. So he was the original. Um, guy at the start and i think the shot of that sort of lonely man yeah. walking into the uh, into the distance is also raymond briggs as well so that's what originally was um the the broadcast um kind of introduction and then the film gets picked up by the american market um because raymond briggs's book had an american release so it has a market there at which stage they say Raymond Briggs is not going to sell this. <laughs> we need somebody. Uh, we need somebody that doesn't look like they're walking to um, Tesco. <laughs> um, and so they sort of they look around and they, they say it needs to be a rock star. It needs to be somebody with rock star status. So David Bowie um, is is the person they turn to. Now, as it happens, Bowie is um, a fan of Raymond Briggs's work and has an affection for it. And so he comes on board quite readily, um, doesn't take a fee. The only payment that he received is the scarf that he wears in the introduction, um, which is rather charming, which he takes home to his son. Um, and so he, he he steps in. And it's one of these kind of peculiar moments. Oh, there is actually, before I talk about the peculiar moment, there is a third version, which I think is in the 90s. Um, Mel Smith, the comedian, voiced Father Christmas. And so a new animation was created to go on in the beginning of the snowman featuring this Father Christmas character. Um, and that ran for a little while and then 
Bowie comes back and he's the one ever since. So it's kind of a peculiar moment, but Bowie had loads of peculiar moments in the 80s. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, just... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's about 1984 that Bowie does his introduction, which absolutely fits with what Bowie was kind of doing at the time. Um, and it, it it is one of those odd moments, but it's Bowie sort of taking it seriously. And I think one of the really charming things about the Bowie introduction is the sincerity with which he delivers um, that opening. And it works. It actually is, you know, a, a good piece of um, of, uh, of film there. There's a project out there, isn't there, that, I, that probably either already exists and I've not read it, and I therefore I apologise to whoever wrote it, uh, or needs to be written about kind of stardom and, and the sort of fantastical energy and things like that. Because with Bowie in particular... Uh, Bowie is, you know, this this oddly throughout his career, right? He's fantastical. He's constantly kind of creating these personas that are kind of sci-fi fantasy um, reflections. And then we have, yeah, Labyrinth. So it's not, it's not, it it doesn't feel surprising that he was associated with the project. Apparently, Raymond Briggs. He was introduced to Raymond Briggs and said, you know, really charmingly, I'm a very big fan of your work. Um, To which Raymond Briggs. (laughs) you know, this slightly grumpy man that Raymond Briggs was, replies, I wish I could say the same. And it's sort of like, oh, it's heartbreaking, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that this movie, watching it, again, actually has quite a lot of whimsical, comedic set pieces in a way that I'd forgotten about. Um, because the set pieces that have really resonated with people, I think, are the more melancholic serious sections of the movie um and it and it goes right to this kind of opening section where we get this we get this kind of we talked about traveling shots i'm fascinated by the use of 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 of, well i wrote down point of view but i don't know whose point of view it is but there's there's this shot that kind of recurs throughout the film and we get it right in the opening sequence where the camera itself almost kind of takes a takes a, a an agency like role in 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 the story and we get this kind of really great gliding tracking shot down into the house where these cartoon graphic picture book images are given depth and and vitality and again it this is what i mean about superman it feels like shot those shots from superman where he's kind of flying at the camera and and the space there's depth and there's energy and the world feels like it's kind of traveling past the camera albeit a kind of faux camera and and the film is very invested in this idea of of building of making a picture book come to life right and that's kind of part of its strength I think a lot of that comes from the original picture book itself and the the way in which Briggs um, managed to evoke movement within the line drawings and the pencil drawings, which they were very, you know, very keen to do. You're absolutely right about that opening shot. I think it sets up an aesthetic expectation of movement within the the film, that this this is a film in which we're going to be almost constantly kind of on the go there's this impetus and this drive that's created within there which is really interesting because in some ways it's a very kind of stable very you know calm (laughs) environment that that we're brought into and a lot of that movement derives from the character of the snowman you know everything he touches kind of there's some bit of play there's some bit of movement that goes on he can't walk past a pineapple without making it into a nose and all this kind of stuff and all of that then sets up i think the impact of the the loss of movement the 
that that final point in the film where things stop moving and it's really interesting that the film um almost goes to a well it does go to a, a still image at the end and then the camera pulls out and we have the movement away and so in order to make that moment matter i think not only do you have to have the narrative connection you have to have narrative events that connect you with the characters you know a snowman melting has to mean something to you and yeah. also to the central character but also in terms of as an, an aesthetic experience having that kind of fluidity of movement that that sort of penetrates through all of the sequences mm. to have that stop and to have the potential for that to stop so suddenly and so unexpectedly actually has a kind of aesthetic impact mm. as a viewer as well as this kind of narrative um shock that people feel <laughs> at the end of the film yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Chris, movement, it's all about movement. It's about a snowman coming to life. <clears throat> could, could could we say this is about animation? I was, so and, I, I, and, if, and if you are going to say that, let's tick off another box on the uh, Christmas bingo list. Sh- um. Yes. Uh, it's like some our version of an advent calendar where you just look behind, <laughs> you look behind the door and there's me going, it's all about animation. Making a mental note to do that for next year. Uh, <laughs> so I, yeah, I had obviously mobility through the animated space. Later on in the film, it's, I think it is anchored to particular characters, especially Especially the sort of motor, motorbike, motorcycle sequence where they ch- chase a fox and, and it sort of moves quite rapidly through the woods. Uh, so at, at some point you get quite specific POV shots. But I think James is about setting up an expectation at the start that movement will play a key role, but also de-animation and lack of movement will play a key role in, in this. It also, for me, connects it quite connects the film quite directly and, and deliberately to, to childhood because the child protagonist spends a lot of the first... The first five minutes of the film watching and observing and re-watching and looking out the window and returning to bed and then looking again and and the the the, the expectation of movement by a character in the in the film towards a character that that he has created so i wrote down essentially this boy is constructing I mean, there's there's moments where he pl- just plays in the snow, making footsteps, picking up a snowball, throwing it at the kitchen window, and then almost immediately starts to construct a body. So we have child as modeler, child as I was going to say animator, but actually it's almost like child as character designer. So it's 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 that I found really interesting that that it's it is about animation, but actually quite specifically it's about the design of you know a fatherly figure. The father doesn't play. You see the mother. Um, but the father doesn't seem to play that much of a role. And this maybe links into conversations we'll have later on about gender, about the role that this snowman is playing in relation to gender and performance and some of the sort of things that the, the snowman does. So I think movement is is really important. Uh, absolutely. And the, the sort of, you get a sense of the tactile nature yes. of the modelling that's going on as well. And it's a relatively, I mean, it's a 24 minute film. It's a relatively long sequence mm-hmm. within that duration of the making. And so it commits time yeah. to that. As as you were sort of describing that, Chris, it made me think there's something about movement and childhood going on here as yeah. well, especially, especially at Christmas time, you know, this constant activity that, that children generate. And it occurred to me that most, I think most of the time we're seeing the parents, they're quite still, they're sitting or every time almost or yeah. standing very still yeah. whereas sleeping in bed or yeah yeah, 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 yeah. they are they are the world's heaviest sleepers actually i mean <laughs> an, an actual motorbike starts up and uh, they don't stir at all um yeah but i mean that that image of them asleep in bed they're kind of you know um 
is very consistent with how they're represented. Whereas the little boy is always on the go, always on the move. And so this this expectation of him looking out at the window, almost as though he's going to imbue this snowman with his own activity. But just by looking at him, there's a sort of a willingness, a transfer of energy. I was I, I was thinking about the division then that I mentioned at the start between our inside and outside space. So inside is watching, is order, and it's routine. It's it's brushing teeth. It's getting ready for bed. It's 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 routine. It's order. Outside is sort of chaos, freedom, and, and movement. And it struck me that when the snowman first comes alive, the, the child brings the snowman in rather than the child running out. And I thought that was a, an intriguing move that I don't know what I mean by this, but I don't, I don't know what it means. But bringing, bringing the snowman in to sort of disrupt this world. Well, you might, you, might, you might say we're getting all the rhetorics on display here. So we're getting an intri- a moment, uh, the episode. Look at you, fantasy bolts. Look at you go. <laughs> But we're getting the first episode where the kid, where the snowman's brought in, is is an intrusive rhetoric, right? Fantasy comes into to the known and the familiar, and it makes things familiar, unfamiliar again. Because the, as as James was saying, the snowman delights in picking up objects and turning them into other objects, or not knowing what the objects are, or making the space that is familiar strange, right? That's what all that first kind of episodic, playful episode is about. Is about bringing this creature of magic into a non-magical space and making that space magical kind of by proxy yeah absolutely and it it reminds me a bit of um et which is released um yep uh same year 82 is it um we did this on the show a few episodes ago. i'm not sure i shouldn't just throw in things as tests no, it's all right that means i get to google it uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 82 82 yeah um, which you know has a similar thing where Elliot's bringing ET into the house, and mm-hmm. you know ET obviously drinks the beer and kind yeah. of it, it all goes wrong. But it's exactly what you're describing there, Chris, of sort of bringing it into the familiar realm. I think also it's it's slightly. I think there's an affinity that is created between the boy and the snowman. I think there's something quite interesting, almost Frankenstein's monster-like about creating this. Uh, this uh, being but what he's doing is creating a playmate with some of his own characteristics you know movement playfulness all of these things so bringing him into the house makes absolute sense you know come into my environment and see what we can do here how can Mm -hmm. we transform all of these dull elements that we have in this domestic environment how can we transform them into something that's playful and that's something that's you know, far more engaging and far more animated than it was previously. Does does this mean that the snowman is... And I was trying to think this through when, when I was watching it. Is the snowman making up for a, a lack in the boy's life well there's a fraternal aspect to the relationship i would say like there's a there's it's it's quite acute that the child is, seems to be an only unless i've missed something there seems to be an only child right yeah so, yeah i i think that fraternal's sort of more in line and i think the reason is that the parents aren't absent there's nothing wrong yeah. with the parents no no, no. i mean you know, there's a temptation to see everything through a kind of Harry Potter lens of well, what's the uh, what's the neglect that's being um, being countered here? And I don't think there is. I think it's it's more. It makes me think of the Wizard of Oz a little bit more actually. That you know, everyone kind of ignores Dorothy, but they're not bad. They're just they're just busy. And yeah, um, yeah. it, it's um, it's the, the similar thing here. Actually, the, the mother's 
caring. She makes sure that he's sort of got a, a hat and, you know, there's a nice bit where she helps him put his pyjamas on before bed. And you think that's quite a good detail to put in, actually, because it, it just shows that there isn't something that needs correcting here. Yeah. The only the only thing that the snowman's bringing is is company that is on the on the boys level that's sort of in the same realm of imagination that the boy is occupying at that stage of yeah. childhood and so the idea that he constructs i mean i think constructs a playmate kind of in his own image and i think that the film is using some mirroring at times when the boy has built the snowman and is standing looking at him the boy's standing still the snowman's looking still there's this shot that isn't really necessary but what it does show is that it's sort of yes i've built something for myself that is like myself as well and mm. you know it will have that that affinity uh, as a result and of course they do they do everything together from that point on mm, interesting so we get this sequence in the house and then they come out of the house and start playing again in the snow and we have a the nominal snowball fight which uh, which we were all waiting for and, and is indeed included we get some more shots of 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 of, of, of moving cameras and depth and, and the snow kind of coming back and forth um, in the depths of the frame. And, and it occurred to me that snow, snow's a really great, it's one of those, it's like water or fire or these kind of elemental forces that work really well with animation because it's almost like, and indeed with, with childhood, right? And that when, why are kids so excited when it snows? Well, it's because the kind of the whole world becomes this almost like drawing box, right? You can, you can draw, you can write messages on things that you couldn't write messages from. You can build creatures out of, of uh, ornaments. You can have snowball bites where you can take an element, bring it together, make a missile, throw it, and then it instantly dissipates and goes away again. That kind of ephemeral quality to it. So I think. There's something about that as well, right? The snow, the, the snow comes to life. It's not just the snowman that comes to life. The snow comes to life in, in that sequence and, 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 and throughout. So that we get another kind of, I guess, level of enchantment. We've enchanted the house and now we've enchanted the kind of atmosphere around it. So, yeah, that struck me. Yeah, it's funny how the film does use snow because there's those moments where snow kind of falls and it has this 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 quality of animation to it is actually moving mm. but there's lots of times where snow's being used to kind of accentuate stillness yep. and and calmness and uh, it it's interesting when you were saying about water and fire and it made me think well you can kind of do more with those elements in in animation to a degree because they can have a sort of narrative danger they can have something to them whereas this a lot of it is settled snow yep. and this idea that snow is being used to to create a different an alternative world you know a good, world ti that, good title for a book yeah <laughs> great title for a book <laughs> but that creates a, a landscape that is a nighttime landscape doesn't have people in it when they're going over the fields that suddenly looks strange the shots where they're on the motorbike and they're going through the trees and it suddenly looks like a kind of almost a haunted wood aesthetic to it and you think well yeah that does kind of fit everything changes at night but particularly when you have that snow if you've ever opened the curtains and looked out at the snow and it's fallen at night and everything just looks very very different yeah i, I really like that idea of snow as this enchanting as this enchanting force um as you said snow creates a blank canvas and sort of the conditions for creativity and and and, and animation i guess 
that then that becomes a real counterpoint to just to take us back inside momentarily this where the child brings the snowman inside first of all to, to engage in the question of routine so the snowman puts false teeth in brushes teeth um uh and there's a few other things television teeth dress up uh, and then dance and i was thinking oh these are really interesting things almost like the, the child or the boy is trying to in culture or socialize this snowman and i thought that was a really interesting the, the decisions one makes to sort of what would i if i if a snowman came to life what what are the things that i would teach a snowman right off the bat or introduce the snowman to and i thought that was a really and then the danger of fire when they re- when the boy realizes that they need to move away this isn't a convincing this isn't frozen in the way that snow is is created and used as as part of this spectacle of creative flurry and many people have written about um the, the snow are frozen in relation to to, to to gender and creativity and and um kind of queerness actually also for the for the block um so it's not it's not convincing snow in that sense but it's absolutely convincing in the way that it taps into the immediate need for creating with it um and that's what i really liked about the film even if it pulls back from the visuals in terms of you know this is not a com- i'm not going to accidentally think this is a f- um, photographic or f- photorealist uh, film th- there is something absolutely believable and truthful and authentic uh, authentic about the child's proximity to snow as this creative in possible space of enchantment so i really like that about the the film the the energy that seemed to bustle in all of the all of the um scenes of creativity that were filtered through this child that then repeat through these shots of of these point of view shots whatever we end up um kind of calling them we've mentioned the motorcycle so but 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 that sequence kind of has a lot of what you're saying there chris and 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 you james so maybe maybe we will we will we will breeze past that because it it leads us to the the you know if the most memorable sequence in I was about to say the standout moment but I think that it is full of these great little episodes but the one that is kind of is certainly the most well remembered bit of the film which I don't know we'll call it the walking in the air sequence for want of a better term but it's obviously this moment where we get the, the song uh, sung on the soundtrack and actually if we could talk about the soundtrack that would be great because I think that's another yeah, strength yeah. of this movie um, but yeah so we get the sequence they fly to, to the North Pole but during that flight the film kind of almost pauses on this kind of really vast montage of the or, or, or this i don't know what is it an epi- a, a sequence where the snowman and the child fly over the hills of 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 england and 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 sussex it seems like right from what i'm reading um ja- well james unpack it for us because i mean it's <laughs> such a beloved sequence in kind of british film television culture that it seems hard to even know where to start with it so why don't you start and we'll see where we can go with it well, I'm a yes, Sussex, correct. Uh, okay. I, I think it is Sussex. I think there is the. I think Brighton is. Yeah, yeah is there's glimpsed. a pavilion in it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think montage is absolutely right, not just in terms of time, but also the the visual quality of it. This idea that there is an overlaying of different landscapes, different features. It has that feel of montage to it. That's this accumulation of visual spectacle, and I think that the the film prepares us for this moment through the mobility of the camera that we've talked about already but there is a really striking bit of animation when they're they're running and then they take off and you mentioned earlier alex about the superman um comparison <laughs> but there is there is something about even within a film like superman or or the snowman that has 
already established its credentials as magical things can happen here that that moment at which something takes flight is is a magical moment and the film the snowman seems to realize that that is going to be the point at which um the the audience will be taking off with the, the visuals and so it really makes a, it really emphasizes that and i think that that montage quality that we're talking about is how do you create texture and movement once you've had that moment of of taking off what do you do next and i think the film is quite intelligent in the way it introduces different aspects narrative aspects but visual aspects as well so you've got water as a contrast to snow you know we talked quite a bit about the visual quality of snow well then it brings in water and what what can you do with water well you can put a whale in it and then you can create movement there you can have the um the the cruise ship which looks like quite a bleak cruise ship that's just <laughs> going around the british isles sort of on on christmas eve but you can have that sort of different perspective you know we talked about point of view what would it look like for somebody to see these figures sailing through the air? So we have the girl looking out of her bedroom window. Then we have the, the drunk chap on the, uh, the ship who's wondering what's in his, his wine bottle. So it's, it's shifting us around the spectacle of flight rather than simply keeping us with the, the, the figures flying. And I think spatially that's such a clever move on the part of the film to give that sort of um, texture and impetus to something that might get quite boring and repetitive um, after a while. Yeah, uh, I, but isn't on that notion of kind of shift? I love the idea of kind of yeah taking off with the image. Um, the film also shifts our relationship to fantasy because you talked about that little detail at the start to, to have the mum show him how to put pajamas on. To, and that's really important because that allows us to to not have to qualify the fantasy as this remedy to something that is missing or absent in the same way as we might do, as you said, the, the Harry Potter narrative. Um, but also the detail of having that reveler, that, that incredulous rev, reveler looking at the fantasy also does, in terms of you were saying about rhetorics of fantasy, Alex, it's also... It's also doing something else, and the boy seem to seems to expect fantasy to happen, and that's and I'm trying to think through. The boy expects fantasy to happen, whether that's because he's a child or, or that's just a childish desire to want things to come to life. It's your Andy in the Toy Story again, versus the reveler who is supposed to be. You know, fantasy is something that adults look at differently. I don't know. It's just a yeah. just a, a way that the film moves us around the fantasy that I was struck by. No, 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 but 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 it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like the rest of the sequences have this whimsy and joy and play to it. This one, it might just be the music, has a a bittersweet, melancholic. There's something reflective about the walking in the air sequence that doesn't doesn't feel the same as the rest of the movie, and it's a real struggle to work out what it is because even the song itself is articulating magic and 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 something that's supposedly joyous or sublime, but it's doing it in a way that also feels, I guess, fleeting. It feels ephemeral. It feels like it's, as, as we're, as we're enjoying this, it will soon, I mean, like the snowman itself, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. Cause it'll soon be gone. Almost there's, I, again, I struggle with it, but, but there is something kind of, yeah, melancholic almost about that sequence. Well, there absolutely is. I mean, the, 
so well let's talk about the music a yes, little bit then. Yeah, yeah, um yeah. so Howard Blake, the walking in the air theme, the tune, um he, he had it already. It was something that he wrote. Uh, I think he'd split up with um somebody and uh wrote this this bit right. of music and then realized that it would fit. It's it's in a minor key, um mostly there is um the the middle section that takes us into the major but but really it's a minor key composition and so it has that kind of tone that you're describing and it's also as you say mourning something almost as it's happening which is an unusual slightly unsettling position for a viewer to be in i think also it kind of taps into the sensation of what it would be like to be sort of going through the air with a snowman um you know that there is a kind of the the film has it attaches a kind of peril to a lot of the adventure and the fun that's going on at the same time that you know there is this kind of wonderment but there's also this slight you know fearfulness um that that's going on there as well and so the the music seems to tonally fit that very well it also seems to capture the scale of the the visual spectacle that we have at this point in the film um and i mean it's an extraordinary soundtrack really in that respect the extent to which howard blake keeps pace with the visuals and create and evokes a mood within um the film is is astonishing and it as i was watching it again it really reminded me i don't know if you've ever seen um a silent movie screening with um a live pianist Mm. and which is sort of how howard blake composed it you know watching it and and composing as he goes along and just how skillful they are at evoking mood as they're kind of watching it and howard blake seems to be doing a similar thing he understands something about the film but i think also understand something about childhood that childhood and childhood fantasy isn't necessarily just about happy skippy wonderful adventure that there is something there's an unease and an unsettling quality to it and the transience the fleetingness of of fantasy in childhood as well i was i was thinking about the role of these these reactions, these reaction shots, because I suppose there's a way of reading the film where you, it's it was all a dream and it was just something that the child really wanted to, and though and, and a lot of the film is from the child's perspective or at the very least the child and the slow man's perspective, not just through these point of view shots, but in terms of the way that they motivate the action and and the scenes and the action within scenes. So these little moments of reaction almost tell us that the that fantasy exists that fantasy is existing in this in this space and that point about access james that adults are are outside of this they're not going to understand they're not going to understand this messiness of, of fantasy in relation to children so yeah those those little reaction shots seem to 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 tell us something yeah, tell us something about how this register of fantasy or this this rhetoric of fantasy. I was reading just, you know, on the standard stuff that's out there, the Wikipedia articles and everything, that that the way it's presented was that, 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 that um it was that Howard Blake was the one that came up with the idea of having um it's the the film being without vocals and it being silent and being an orchestra throughout. Do we know is that is that is that the accurate way round or is that something that they had in mind from the start? Because it's also important to note that this is a you know a silent movie in the inaccurate way that films were silent. Like it's a, it's a film without dialogue with an with an orchestral accompaniment. 
yeah, I mean, you, you're absolutely right that it was Howard Blake's suggestion um, that it should be a wordless um, yeah. uh, musical score, except, of course, for the flying sequence, yeah. which has has the, um, the, the vocals in it. Um, I think that a lot of that, well, it, it comes from Howard Blake, but also it's suggested in the form of the original Raymond Briggs book, which is, is wordless as well. And it, again, it, it sort of stands out as a rare moment of television in that respect. And it's quite unusual to see um, uh, uh, anything on television that doesn't have words. And particularly as television is often talked about as a medium for the distracted viewer, there's often a heavy emphasis that's placed on on words and the the, the audio quality of television. It was related to radio for, for a long time for that reason. And so, again, maybe when we were thinking about, well, you know, why is this thing endured? It may be that you literally have to sit down and watch it um, to, to, to follow the story. At the same time, it really is an audiovisual experience because of Howard Blake's um, scoring. And although there aren't vocals to it, there is a voice to the music um, that's, that's really um, interesting that there is a personality to each of the little vignettes of music that we have with the different sequences that he manages to very quickly and very accurately pinpoint the tone and mood of a sequence and create a musical score that that has that voice to it that is actually narrating music as narration in this film i think is is really key i know that there was a sequel to this right um 10 years ago the snowman and the snow dog and i wasn't quite as well received probably just because it didn't capture the same moment but i do think one of the striking differences is that one uses a much more modern soundtrack right and and has like a pop song well uh sort of pop artists writing electronic and 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 and, and i think it's quite interesting to do that but traditionally one of the kind of conventions of fantasy scoring is this idea of relying on on the on the orchestra maybe perhaps it links back to kind of opera or you know theatrical traditions or you know i'm thinking of like wagner and like the ring cycle or something i know i'm i'm clutching at straws here but there is definitely that kind of association right of of the orchestra as the as the announcer of of magic sonically um in a way that a guitar seems too kind of too modern and too um, of this world to be able to do that as opposed to a string or a violin or, an, you know. You if know. only Bowie had done the score. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd watch it. I'd yeah. watch it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bowie's version of Walking the Air. Oh, yeah, the final thing to clear up, of course, I'm, I'm sure everyone both knows the, the hypocritical version and the real version by now, but we should establish Alan Jones is, is, did not do the, uh, the, the singing on this. Uh, I actually have forgotten the, the choir boy's name. Let me find it on the internet. I think uh, it's Peter Orty, is it? Peter Orty, thank you. Yeah, thanks, James. So just to give the credit there, Alan uh, Jones covered it a few years later. Anyway, so the final sequence of, our, of, our, of the, the, the film, which I always forget about, but it's odd that we always forget about it because it's perhaps the most fantastical sequence of the film. They arrive in the North Pole and we do get Father Christmas and we do get dancing other snowmen and Scottish snowmen in kilts and all manner of hijinks um, ensues. Um, do we have anything to say about the final uh, sequence or is it... I, I'm, I'm, the only thing I have to say is that I, I find it odd 
that I don't remember it all the time. It would seem like that's that's the film, right? That's the bit the kids all wait for. But I think it's almost a testament to the skill of those earlier, more domestic scenes that the film actually seems more resonant when it's making the, the domestic magical than kind of taking us to this otherworldly, you know, completely, uh, you know, enchanted space. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be that thing um, of the boy introduces the snowman to his culture mm-hmm. and then the snowman introduces the boy to his culture. And this is, these are the, the conventions that we follow. These are the sort of, this is what we do every year. Um, and we all gather and we, we have this, um, this, this dance uh, effectively in this, this party. And so there's a kind of charm to what's going on there. But there's also that striking contrast between Christmas in the boys' home, which is quite sort of... They sit and watch the television at night and have a very settled, normal family existence Mm. that's still, you know, the stillness again. Whereas the snowman's Christmas is exactly what you'd expect the snowman to do, which is to have even more movement and activity. You know, he, he can't exist in the boy's house without making everything move and so it makes absolute sense that when all the snowman get together the thing that they will do is to fill the frame with movement and that whole sequence is kind of an assault of different snowmen bodies circling and intertwining and coming in and out of the frame and it's it's it really works as a narrative culmination. I think you need it. He needs to go there and something needs to happen before he meets Father Christmas, which we'll probably talk about. But also visually, it it has to kind of fulfill an expectation that the film has been building up. So it it seems natural to me that that's what will happen, even if it's slightly weird. Well, 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 as Chris says on on the final point, snow melts, uh, it does. and 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 that's that's what we get at the end of the movie. This image of of the a very un, unexpected to- Well, it's not unexpected. Where else is this going? But it, it the way it's <laughs> delivered is quite abrupt. Um, there's a, a and you mentioned this earlier, James. Right, there's a shock factor to that ending that 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 does feel quite abrasively like sudden and sad. We don't get the oh my god he's melting he's melting what a world what a world moment. We get <laughs> oh my god he's gone. Uh, and before we even knew he he might go before even the threat was introduced, yeah. it's already happened. Um, and then the film kind of ends and this still, yeah, still well- sad image. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things in that. The the sequence the next morning has a, it repeats the same visuals and the same music, I think, um, to the previous day. So it builds up an expectation of something else. Uh, and then there is a very sharp cut, I think, um, to him opening the door and his reaction. And then we're really quickly into him standing by the, the the pile of snow and it's that thing of not like when snowmen melt it it happens gradually <laughs> if you've yeah. ever made yeah, a yeah, snowman yeah. <laughs> it kind of drawing became. out the trauma yeah 
Yeah. Well, that, as, I was I was thinking that like when Chris was saying that as part of the game, right? Part of the game is you build the snowman, and then every morning you open up the curtain and you look how, how if it's still surviving. The other thing it. is the other thing is the snowman goes last, not first. The snow goes first, then the snowman. But hey, that's a that's, I, I, I shan't quibble. I, I think this is a big continuity issue with the end of it. Actually, <laughs> there's still I mean whether the father went out and just threw a load of boiling water <laughs> over this snowman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll, te- that'll teach him to muck around with my motorbike. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Absolutely, but but also that yeah. the film itself loses animation because you mentioned this yeah. earlier, James. That, that that we then revert to a still image, which certainly in cell animation uh, or hand drawn animation, let's say hand drawn technique, is often the reserve of background. Backgrounds are still characters move, you know, and 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 here you have the whole, you have everything. You have you, everything is deanimated, so the film itself loses its animation. Um, so I thought that was that was really striking, and again, as a counter sets up that expectation of movement at the start, and then pulls it away from you and the boy at the at the end. Cool. Yeah, and we have this the the walking in the air theme comes back as a, a piano version at yeah, the end. Yeah, yeah. And what you were saying earlier, uh, uh, it was Alex actually about the mournful quality of that piece of music. Its use in the flying sequence anticipates this ending, so it's absolutely appropriate that it should come back at the end uh, when you are, when he is genuinely kind of, yeah. you know, feeling that remorse at, at the loss. Um, so there's a there's kind of a nice continuity in in the music yeah. there. Yeah. Do, do we have any final thoughts on the snowman? I, mean, I think we've so we've managed to speak about it for about twice the length of the thing itself, which is. Uh, so well done, academics. We've ruined it again. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, any final thoughts we haven't covered that, that are important that we mention? Well, I mean, y- you mentioned that there is this sequel, um, which, yeah, sure. you know, there is there is a... It did have a, 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 a sort of mixed reaction, and there is this sort of tendency for everything to be kind of criticised that is a version of something else in, in some ways. I think it's interesting if we are going to look critically at, at that later sort of film, that how close it does stay to the original. Um, and it, musically, it is different. It seems very much lighter, very much more kind of pop song mm. oriented to, 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 to me. But also it stays with the white male lead uh i don't mean the snowman um i mean the 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 boy the it, and it's it was quite surprising to me at the time and is still surprising and a bit sort of disappointing really that there was an opportunity to actually do something different to have a different type of central character in there you know not a white character or not a male character not only because that might be quite an important thing to do, but also genuinely, I think that would have been an interesting thing to explore. How can Christmas mean different things to different types of children? How can fantasy mean something interesting to different groups? And sort of visually and aesthetically, I think it would have given something new. And it really does surprise me um, because of all the places you could probably do that, I kind of think Channel 4 would be the the most progressive environment. And I'd be really surprised if there wasn't a conversation in 2012 
about about that it 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 mm. sort of jars a bit with me that it 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 stuck so closely to that but i don't know it's it's an interesting thing isn't it i guess that one of the the the, the things that perhaps is the, the the issue of nostalgia once a text becomes nostalgic it becomes hermetically sealed right and there's you know there's this you know it's like fa the fan reaction that you know very visceral and and very obnoxious uh you know in certain sections of fandom about all this kind of stuff you know you can't have can't have black people in star wars you can't have um you know ethnically diverse casts in lord of the rings like oh, jesus this, this um this uh, little mermaid yeah uh, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly like, what next black people yeah yeah, has, yeah, yeah. You know, has has the world gone mad with <laughs> some, yeah. you know, mermaids? Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. So like, I think you're right. There's perhaps some sort of once a text becomes sacred, it becomes less, uh, um, or or there's a resistance out there to, to to tinker with it, and and actually it's almost like that's when you need to to make these cases the most, and it's almost the safest place to do it. So it's very lamentable that perhaps that isn't that wasn't opp an opportunity un unexplored there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I think I think we're about out of time, um, and and people have presents to wrap. I'm sure, so we'll um, we'll wrap up. Uh, but uh, James, so your book, uh, you've got a book on television and repetition that's coming out forthcoming. People might be listening to this in Christmases to come. So give us this, give us the sales pitch on that, and let us know when it's out. <laughs> I like the idea of doing a sales pitch. Um, well, it was. Uh, yeah, it's sort of it's had a few different lives this this book, and it, it settled on on television and repetition. And it's really because repetition is uh, something that has quite negative connotations. It's the thing that we try and avoid, and I think you know we we've managed to probably avoid it in our conversation today. I hope, mm -hmm. but. Um, it, but especially in relation to television, it, it, it's sort of the thing, you know, repeats on television are seen as, you know, something yeah. that people don't particularly like or welcome. Yet we watch repeated content all the time yeah, on television. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was interested in that and interested in the way that television uses repetition as a thematic and aesthetic device. So how patterns of repetition um create meaning within um, television texts and how they can be used variously and differently in different um, different examples. So, yeah, yeah it's um, finding different new words for repetition has been... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about, I was thinking about uh, yeah, repetition being able to save so many television programmes that are almost tank and then the repetition or the repeat save save the show because people watch The Office again and go, oh, yeah, it's I missed that the first time. Only Fools and Horses is a, is a very good example of, of, of that, um, which maybe leads back to The Snowman as something, because I've managed to dodge it every year when it's been on television, but that the repetition of that doesn't seem to to alleviate its popularity. It sort of increases it, accelerates it. Yeah, and it's kind of a benign repetition, isn't it? Um, the snowman. It's it's not it's not intrusive. It and it doesn't feel like repetition because it's part of an annual cycle rather than, oh my god, they've shown this week after week after week, which yeah. I think is what what people fear with repetition. Um, and I think also it's what because it comes at Christmas and it is sort of non-demanding in many respects. It's exactly what people probably want at Christmas, something that's not going to sort of require too much. I think that's why Only Fools and Horses and Gavin and Stacey and those kinds of sitcoms yeah. Yeah. appeal at Christmas as well. It, I mean, that's Christmas, isn't it? In a way, that's the most comforting aspect of Christmas is you sort of know beat by beat 
how the day's going to go and the next day after that um within a within a within a a rough structure and there's something very comforting about repetition so it's good to be thinking about it in a, in a slightly less than you know yeah that's a really interesting project and look forward to reading it when it is out um, <laughs> with, with, with the risk of repeating myself uh james thanks again thanks so much for coming on the podcast oh you're very welcome it's been an absolute pleasure it's been a pleasure talking to you uh chris uh that's been us for another year of podcasts i suppose yeah, so we're gonna yeah, take yeah. a very quick christmas break um and we'll be back in mid-january there will be one more footnote episode to come after this with chris and i discussing uh christmas movies what is a christmas movie how might you think critically about christmas as a concept as an yep. idea as an aesthetic um and then we'll take a quick break so one more to come and then we'll see you in the new year have a lovely holiday um and uh yeah um we'll see merry christmas time. merry christmas i haven't done the ad bin but we'll call it a christmas treat um, <laughs> um we'll see you next time goodbye bye